You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, MD, Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, The Admiral Benbow, Proctor, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey, as well as our quartermasters, Hunter, Buddy, Heather, Howard, Crimson Davy Thunder, and Felony Melanie. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Taylor, Sean, Mark, Onoy, Levi, Leanne, Jack, Gary, David, and Andrew as well as our new quartermasters, E, and Roger the Cabin Boy, and our new Commodores, Gangsway Sally, Griffin, Jacob, Leslie the Spice Chonger, Lisa, Matt, Thomas, and Scarlet Dawn. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. On the 10th of April, 1697, a frigate from London arrived in Bombay. She was a sleek, sturdy, 36-gun man-of-war named the Scepter. The Scepter arrived just in time to join a small fleet with two other ships, and all three were to receive commissions from the English East India Company. These commissions had one purpose, to guard the Mocha fleet, the pilgrim fleet to Mecca. In doing so, these ships were permitted to capture any pirate ships they might find and seize any ill-gotten cargo that might be aboard, subject, of course, to East India Company approval, but that's how they were to make money. The Scepter was a pirate hunter, and she was well suited to the job. It would have been a fantastic pirate ship. Nonetheless, though, this voyage proved to be both legal and promised to be profitable. The scepter was led by a captain who was quite a character for most of his life. His name was Captain Finney, and there are a lot of words one could use to describe Captain Finney. My favorite collection of such words comes from Richard Zacks and the Pirate Hunter. Zacks called him a hard decisive, fat, foul-tempered man. Today we're going to be talking quite a bit about the East India Company, about their relations to the Crown and to Captain Kidd, and about this ship specifically. The events on board this rival pirate hunter. 
This is episode 248, The Scepter. Last time, we left Captain Kidd and the crew of the Adventure Galley at the Babs, or the Straits of Bab el-Mandeb. That's the entrance to the Red Sea, which lies between Africa and Arabia. Now, we should all know all about the Babs by now. We visited the Strait back in 1693, with Thomas II, and then again in 1695, when Thomas II and Henry Avery and a host of other pirates arrived. It was a hot spot for piracy, going back centuries. But that's why William Kidd was there in the first place. Not for piracy, of course, naturally, but to hunt pirates, because William Kidd was not a pirate. Right? I mean, that's the question. But I think that question hinges on a different question. Was William Kidd an idiot? Another question, maybe a better question, would be just how self-absorbed was Captain Kidd? I don't think there's much doubt that he was a bit of a narcissist. You have to have quite the opinion of yourself to stand toe-to-toe with a Royal Navy ship of the line and expect them to salute you. But Captain Kidd did that kind of thing more than once. But was he an idiot? You know, back in 1695, as we all know, Henry Avery and Thomas II captured the largest prize to date in pirate history. It was big news, worldwide news. Everyone knew about it. But Captain Kidd knew especially well, because his writ from King William explicitly ordered him to hunt those pirates down. The question is, the question upon which the answer to is William Kidd an idiot hinges, was did he know that the English East India Company had sworn to protect all future pilgrim voyages to Mecca, that the company had pledged men and ships and resources to see that all of those ships arrived safely, and that once they were done with the Hajj that they returned safely to India. I'm not sure that Captain Kidd did know about that. That wasn't exactly widely publicized news at the time. And I mean, we can't expect the broadsheets in London, much less those in New York, to be printing headlines like, Englishmen make huge concessions to the Muslim Emperor of India. That's just not the kind of thing they were going to do. Now, Captain Kidd probably should have been made aware of the situation, He was, after all, about to step right into the middle of it. But I don't know that he was made aware of that situation. And it's time now to talk about what's really going on here. The reality behind the curtain, as it were. Now, we've hinted at this several times, but we haven't explicitly discussed it yet. The reason that the king signed off on such a cockamamie adventure. I mean, sure. Capturing pirates was great and all. It made money for everyone involved. It would bolster the reputation and prestige of the English. But that wasn't why William Kidd was sent to the Indian Ocean. I mean, yeah, the money. Everyone wanted the money, first and foremost. But there was something bigger happening behind the scenes. A game of deadly political maneuvering. At this point in our overall story... The English East India Company was stepping on a lot of toes. Back in England, 
A lot of those toes happened to be very powerful and shod in silk slippers. These included, but were by no means limited to, the toes of King William and Queen Mary. Now, William had never been fond of the East India Company. The leaders were all allies, close allies, to the deposed Stuarts. They were not directly promoted by the Stuarts, but when the king encourages the promotion of a certain young up-and-comer, you give him a promotion. Most of the higher leadership in the company, even many of the lower-down officers, owed their careers to Kings Charles II and James II. You may also remember when William III came to power in England, he did a bit of purging of the Royal Navy. You know, if this officer happened to show too much support for the deposed Stuarts, he was fired. And what do you do when you're a naval officer and you no longer have a job in the Navy? You work for the East India Company, and they were always hiring. It would be a bit too far to call the people in the East India Company Jacobites, but they were political rivals to those who supported the king. Now, the Stuarts... And you know, I should probably clarify here, William and Mary do technically belong to the Stuart dynasty. Queen Mary was Mary Stuart, after all. James was her father. But you know, do they really belong to the Stuarts? The Hanoverian dynasty, the successors to the Stuarts, wouldn't come around for another couple of decades, but William and Mary, and Queen Anne after them, are really kind of their own thing politically and religiously, and especially in terms of foreign relations, they were something completely different from the prior Stuarts. So when we say that the Stuarts benefited from their powerful allies within the East India Company, we mean Charles and James. William did not benefit from them at all. He, instead, he saw a bunch of rivals in the company, some of them bordering on enemies, and right now they were building a massive power base in India, complete with their own navy and a revenue stream that rivaled that of England itself. It was dangerous, and William didn't like it one bit, but after the attack on the Ganji Sawai by Thomas II and Henry Every and all the rest, after that the East India Company was under siege from locals there in India as well as Mughal soldiers. I mean, you know, really, Grand Mughal Aurangzeb's forces were there to ensure that the English weren't massacred by the locals, but it showed William just how weak the East India Company really was. Their fleets needed Royal Navy protection to even get to and from India. It cost the crown a fortune, and it seemed high time to William and Mary that the crown take a bigger stake in the running of the company, as well as in all of the profits that it earned. All of which is to say that the reason William Kidd was in the Indian Ocean in the first place, the really real reason, in my humble opinion, so take from it what you will, but I believe he was there to undercut the East India Company. I'm not alone in this belief. A ton of other writers have shared something similar, but when they do suggest this as a possible theory, they always case it in plenty of caveats. And rightly so, you know, they've got reputations to uphold. Myself, I don't, so I'll happily say that King William III 
when he commissioned William Kidd to capture those pirates, was attempting to seize all that plunder and booty, not just from the dastardly evil pirates, not just from the Mughal emperor, but from the East India Company as well. If it succeeded, it would do maybe irreparable damage to the company, damage that only the crown and all of England's resources could help to repair. But let's be clear. This was, at best, a half-hearted effort. You don't send a leaky galley with some colonial pirate out there if you really want to succeed. You send the Royal Navy, and they could have gotten the job done, no questions asked. But then, if you send the Royal Navy, you have to deal with the political fallout. You lose your plausible deniability. You probably start a war with India, and you wouldn't even succeed in undercutting your enemies in the East India Company. You would just bolster their position. So what do you do? You send out a leaky galley with some colonial pirates. If they fail, nothing of value has been lost. If they succeed, well then, all of the good stuff we just said would happen would happen. So I don't think William Kidd was made aware of any of these behind-the-scenes machinations. I think that the king, and all of his political allies who funded William Kidd's expedition, I think that they just threatened Captain Kidd with a lifetime in debtor's prison if he did not succeed, and then they crossed their fingers. So, was William Kidd an idiot? If he did know about the English East India Company escorts, he would have had to have been an idiot when he sailed into the Gulf of Aden and the Bab el-Mandeb. But I'm not sure that he did. I don't think Captain Kidd made a mistake. I think he was, instead, a pawn. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. If you want nightmares, you are in the right place. I couldn't sleep last night after listening. This podcast is genuinely scary. That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history, Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects, and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind, to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there in the dark. Let's take a step back here. 
Captain Kidd's voyage from the Comoro Silence to the Bab el-Mandeb was relatively uneventful. What Captain Kidd did not know, though, was that when the crew of the adventure galley set sail from the Comoros, they were already losing a race that they did not know they were in. The finish line was the Bab el-Mandeb, and the East India Company had quite the head start. These are those three ships, including the scepter, that we talked about earlier. The three ships that had been commissioned as pirate hunters by the East India Company. Now, joint stock companies did not usually have the right to commission ships. They could own ships and employ officers, but commissioning private vessels was another matter. That was the prerogative of the king and his appointed governors. But in the wake of Henry Every's piracy, the English East India Company had been granted that right by the crown. So that little fleet of three vessels set sail at the end of April. But almost immediately, two of those ships had to turn back. Their crews had been ravaged by disease, both of the tropical and sexually transmitted varieties. The only ship that was not disabled completely was the Scepter. Now, the Scepter had her own troubles, owing mostly to the contrary winds. The monsoon winds at this time of year blew around the Indian Ocean in a clockwise manner. This was great for William Kidd, when he was sailing from northern Madagascar up the coast of Africa to the Gulf of Aden. That clockwise wind pattern helped him out immensely. It carried him north. But when you're sailing from the coast of India to the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea, as these East India Company ships were, it was working directly against you. And this was a problem. I mean, if the scepter was to succeed, if the East India Company was to come through on their promise to protect the Pilgrim fleet, and thus the East India Company could continue to exist, then the scepter had to reach the Red Sea quickly. But instead of a quick voyage, she had to sail way down to the south, almost to the equator. From there, the scepter caught a wind that carried her back north and west, but that little detour added weeks to Captain Finney's voyage that he really couldn't afford to lose. Well, okay, yeah, he could, technically. He did lose that time, and he was still going to beat Captain Kidd, but it was a tight-run thing. The scepter should have been there weeks before William Kidd arrived, and therefore could have set sail with the Pilgrim fleet weeks earlier. Now, at the very tip of the Horn of Africa, that's the horn that sticks out from the eastern coast that creates the Gulf of Aden, there is, at the very tip, the Cape of Gardefois. It's a place where, when you round the cape coming from the south, you have to change direction, and during the monsoon there aren't any of those westerly winds. The calm that had stalled Captain Finney's voyage earlier stalled him once again. Now, this was normal for the place and time of year, so the locals sent out boats to offer trade. They had some trouble communicating with the Englishmen on the scepter, but eventually the crew managed to suss out that there was water ashore, if, that is, there was trade to be offered. Now, the crew of the Scepter needed water, kind of desperately. They'd just taken a month-long detour to the south, and Captain Finney was going to trade for that much-needed water, but then 
the wind picked up. They had a westerly breeze that could carry them into the gulf, and Captain Finney struck while the iron was hot. They couldn't afford to waste this windfall, so he put the men on short-water rations and set sail. Just a few days later, not long at all, the adventure galley arrived at that same spot, the Cape of Gardefois. I mean, it was, like, less than a week. So if Captain Finney had chosen to take on water and not sail with the wind, he would almost certainly still have been there. You know how you will sometimes see videos of animals on the savannah? Maybe during a drought, when they're all congregating at the same watering hole. You'll see lions there, as well as gazelles. While everybody is tense in this situation, nobody's eating each other. It's almost like when everyone is so desperate for water, something of a truce has been called. We could have seen something similar here, at Gardefois. If Scepter had still been there when the adventure galley arrived, I mean, yes, it would have been tense, unknown ships, meeting and all that, but... They would have met, and they could have discussed their respective positions. Captain Finney could have examined Captain Kidd's documents, and maybe Captain Kidd wouldn't have put his foot in his mouth and created yet another enemy. That's a big maybe, but it could have happened. In this alternate history, there's a possibility that these two ships would have been aware of each other from this point forward. Now, they would have been rivals, and certainly not friendly exactly, but they would not have jumped to the conclusions that they later eventually did. But that's not what happened. Captain Kidd stopped for water, and the scepter extended her lead. We have this excellent record of everything that was happening on board the scepter. That's thanks to the first mate, named Edward Barlow. Edward Barlow kept a lifelong journal. It's, a, it's an amazing record of a life at sea. But Barlow was not a successful officer. As a younger man, he'd made some mistakes, and he was considered too timid by the East India Company to ever captain a ship, though as a first mate he was considered capable. But then, irony strikes. Captain Finney fell ill. It was a sudden and shocking illness. He gripped Edward Barlow's arm and said he was not feeling well, and despite the extreme heat in the Arabian Ocean, he said he was cold. He was shivering. The doctor on board gave him some medicine, mercury, I think, and then they bundled the captain in his blankets to sweat it out. But it wasn't going to do the captain any good. And close your ears here if you don't like gross stuff. That evening, Captain Finney projectile vomited blood. Then that blood began to leak out of his nose and his ears, and then he died. That's the kind of detail you can get when you have an amazingly detailed personal journal of someone on board. But that also means that Edward Barlow was now Captain Barlow. The man who was deemed too timid to captain a ship was now in command of the sole ship guarding the Pilgrim fleet. The scepter had more troubles with the wind while in the Gulf of Aden. They had to zigzag a bit to try to catch the wind. And if the timetable for the adventure galley is accurate, which is not a certainty here, but they 
very likely almost met up. At one point, they were less than a day from each other. But then the wind picked up. It carried the scepter through the babs into the Red Sea, and Captain Barlow was impressed at how narrow they were. He could see either side fifteen miles, he says. With that, the scepter sailed on to Mocha. Mocha is a port in the Red Sea, the southern Red Sea. It's the staging ground for all ships that are entering or leaving the sea. It's also the point at which virtually all coffee in the world was passed in 1697. Once Captain Barlow and the scepter were within about a day of Mocha, he furled his sails and sent a boat onto the city to announce his presence. This was official East India Company policy, following what had happened in 1695. Barlow sent a letter with all of his credentials to the city, he flew the flag of the East India Company where they could spot it with their glasses, and he sent two of his agents and an Arabic translator. Now that should have been enough to convince anyone, right? But the dock master there at Mocha was still suspicious of this English vessel. So he sent word to the... it's the mayor, basically. He was the municipal executive, but he was also a religious leader. The mayor, though, was also less than convinced. He expressed his belief that this one singular ship, rather than a proper escort, which he expected, did raise some questions. It seemed to him just as likely, if not more likely, that some pirate had captured an East India Company ship and was using this to lure them out. So when the agents and the translator returned to the scepter, he had ordered them, to keep the scepter at a distance, and then he put the Mocha fleet in a defensive position. Meanwhile, the mayor sent word to Jeddah that a ship had arrived, complete with a translator and agents and a letter. The governor there at Jeddah was much more receptive. Presumably he knew a bit more about the East India Company, and he invited Barlow to come in for a visit. Barlow put on his best uniform. He polished his boots, he belted on his sword, and with a small group of other officers, he took the boat to Mocha. When he arrived, it caused quite a stir in town. The Englishmen and their guides had a bit of a procession through town, but soon enough it turned into a little parade. Children ran alongside, men and women stopped what they were doing to gawk, merchants proffered their wares, and more than a few local toughs shadowed the procession just in case, just in case the English weren't what they claimed. Now, they weren't soldiers, naturally, just casually dressed men with spears and bows and swords who looked like they knew how to use them. It would be disrespectful to send soldiers to escort these English dignitaries, not something the governor would do, but these local shepherds sure knew how to march. Soon enough, though, they were on board a caravan headed to Jeddah, and Captain Barlow was presented to the governor. But it's easy to understand why the governor would be suspicious of Edward Barlow. Instead of a small fleet, he had just the one ship. And presuming that the governor had some news about who was coming, which might or might not be the case, but instead of a hard, decisive, fat, foul-tempered man there's this timid first mate standing before him. But not a pirate. 
It helped that in the week or so that Barlow had been waiting, he had arranged to sail with two Dutch ships that were at Mocha as well. They were on their way to the east, and they'd be stopping at Bombay anyway, so they agreed to sail together. But those two ships and their captains had already been verified, so it helped Barlow's case. After a fairly long interview, in which Barlow was never threatened by any means, but it was pretty clear that his fate was on the line. But once the governor finally decided that Barlow was legitimate, they shared two servings of coffee. And this was quite the experience for Barlow. It's not that he'd never tasted coffee before. There were an estimated 3,000 coffee houses in England alone by about 1,700. Everyone of any standing whatsoever spent some of their day in a cafe. Coffee houses were a gathering place for everyone, down to even like the lower middle class. It actually became something of a serious problem for English brewers. Not that people weren't drinking beer, but according to one observer, quote, coffee, chocolate, and a kind of drink called tea were sold in almost every street in 1659. End quote. Tea had yet to really catch on in England, but coffee was a big deal. So, Barlow knew coffee, but the experience of Arabic coffee was almost ritualistic. The coffee was always prepared in front of those who were about to enjoy it. It was blended with a wide range of exotic spices like cinnamon and cloves, and even the drinking of it had a ritualistic element. Barlow enjoyed himself immensely. But once he was about to depart back to Mocha and his ship, the governor sprinkled Barlow with rose water. It appeared he had been accepted and could continue with his mission. Barlow and his companions got back on the caravan and went back to Mocha. But when he arrived, the town was in turmoil. Doors were locked, windows were shuttered, and the streets seemed to be filled with nothing but armed men. Militias had been formed for some reason. Those militias almost immediately accosted Barlow and his fellow Englishmen. Apparently, some English pirate had infiltrated the town and been up to who knows what kind of evil. Those armed men wanted to hold Barlow accountable for this pirate's actions. But the governor's guards stood up for the Englishmen, said that they had been accepted by the governor and no harm was to befall them. Instead, maybe they should tell him what was going on. So the locals finally explained what had happened. A pirate ship had been spotted hiding out at Bab el-Mandeb, and the captain, possessed by some sort of madness, sneaked into town to spy on the fleet and perhaps to prepare his attack. Maybe sabotage was involved, nobody was sure. It was nefarious, vile, and underhanded, exactly the kind of thing pirates, no, Englishmen, liked to get up to. But some of the locals had managed to catch his name, because he gave it freely, because he wasn't hiding in the first place, and Barlow learned the name of this nefarious pirate, Captain William Kidd. Next time, Barlow and the Scepter are going to meet Kidd and the Adventure Galley. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. You all make this possible. Thank you.
The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to listen to some of their other shows, such as the Explorers Podcast, which I heartily recommend, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.